0: Well, hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and welcome back to another week here with me on the Desi VC podcast. This is your host, Akash Bhatt, and I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. Well, this week is slightly different because my guest has a VC firm situated here in the US, but they also make investments in India. On the show today is Shruti Gandhi. She's the founder and general partner of Array Ventures a data-driven venture capital firm based in the US, investing in AI, machine learning, and deep tech startups. She is also an adjunct professor in the CS department at Columbia University, which, as many of you may already know, is my alma mater as well. She is featured several times in Business Insider, BBC, Forbes, VentureBeat, USA Today, and numerous other publications, and is a host herself hosting the Array podcast. I'm super excited to share this episode with you all. She's got a wonderful story and I'm thrilled to have her join me today. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode and listen to Shruti. So Shruti, here we are. We met three weeks ago on Twitter and then had this memorable conversation on the phone. (laughs) where after discussing a number of things, you had this beautiful thing to say. And I quote, podcast hosts usually aren't that smart. I don't know if you remember saying that.
1: I don't know that. Wait, what? So
0: on that note, welcome to my podcast. How are you? And how have the last three weeks been for you with everything that's going on around us?
1: Maybe you misheard me. I'd like to really add to this. I, myself, am a podcast host. So more importantly, was talking about me. And and more than that, um, I think the context of the conversation was you don't get to come across as smart because you're asking questions, and you know sometimes you're letting the guest speak more than more than you speak. So that's my whole point of maybe you don't come across as smart because you don't have a chance to show that. Is that my point? Is that what I was that what I was saying?
0: I think so, but that's a good save. I'm going to give you credit to that.
1: well thank you for having me Um, and uh, I'm pretty excited
0: it's a pleasure now before we move on I want to quickly point out that you know as we met on Twitter Twitter has been really kind to me over the last year or so I met some incredible people on the platform and learned so much as it's now become a medium for think pieces and opinions from everything from current affairs to things happening in the VC world you're very active on Twitter yourself Do you have a favorite Twitter moment by any chance?
1: Um, Let's see. I could say ours is a very good one. Uh, You know, we ended up having a very long conversation, as you said. Uh, But uh, I'm not sure if something, you know, I, I should have been more prepared. I'm sure there are many good moments, but right now I can't think of any.
0: That's okay. I actually asked you that question so that you can take my name. So this works out really, really (laughs) well for me. (laughs) Now that we have that out of the way, we can get to the meaty part of the podcast. You have a fabulous story, a true outsider in the industry who is now balling at the moment. So did you always know you wanted to be in venture capital? And if not, or if so, how did that journey play out for you?
1: No, I was not always planning to be in venture capital. I did not know what venture capital was until a decade ago uh, when I actually, not, you know, shortly after that, I got into venture capital. Um, So my journey has been, um, I was an engineer, had a company. And as I was raising money for my company, um, I started to see that some of the companies that were competitor in our space were raising a lot more money, a lot faster, a lot quicker. Um and um I, you know, coming from the world of entrepreneurship in, in, in India, I did not know what venture back companies meant. So I kind of decided to go down that path and figure out what is the difference between a um, you know, small scale versus a venture backed company. And, um, you know, what, what, what does it take for a venture back company to be very successful? Um, so that's the journey I decided to go on and um, re- decided to reverse engineer a venture um, and b- before my next startup. And that's, that's how I ended up in, in the venture world. Now I've been here for a decade, um, worked at a few firms and about five years ago started my firm Array Ventures. And we're in our second fund, 42 companies. We invest in enterprise early stage, pre-seed companies, um, and that with abundant data, machine learning, and things like like that.
0: Absolutely. Now, why venture capital? You could have continued building companies and started investing as an angel on the side that could have still given you an opportunity to look at exciting companies. What was the tipping point for you that led you to pursue this in the form of a VC?
1: Yeah, no, as, as, as I said, I wanted to understand a true venture back business and how it worked at a, actually, we did it from, um, I did it from every perspective. So I worked at a corporate venture. I worked, helped start Samsung's investment arm. It's now called Samsung Next. I worked with a few smaller funds. I worked with uh, funds with different interesting models um, where the VCs would um, kind of call themselves founding investors and then. And then actually be part of the company for a while. Um, I worked at an independent, you know, just financially driven uh, top tier firm called True Ventures. And then, you know, so we—I I was on every, i was purely on the journey to understand the world of of uh, venture backed companies, and I kind of immersed myself into um, doing it on from every perspective. And so that that was what I, what what I'd been doing before I started the fund.
0: Well, that's awesome. Now you're a one person GP fund. Talk us through the process of setting up a fund. Where does one actually begin? How do you deal with aspects on the fundraising side, say LP meetings, pitching, the rejection that comes with it? And once you have the first close, reporting, investing, hiring, compliance, and other factors associated with running a fund, how and what do you do to even set up a fund in, in in the first place and how does one go about with the whole process
1: yeah i think the first step is getting the money to be able to invest you know i think without it you don't have a fund um so either it's your money or either it's raising money um and then and then the next step is actually setting up the structure and figuring out um the documents and legalities around it um
0: do you, do you know how many meetings you had with lps before you had the first close
1: our first fund was a little different uh, we had a lot of our founders that kind of got me in the business uh i before starting our fund had founders um you know who had exits and they they kind of helped me put get in the business of starting a fund so it was a little different we did a first small close with with those cap, with that capital. But I'm sure I did not track how many uh, comp, found LPs I met, but I'm sure countless. Um, and, and, you know, especially, and, and then it's over the time, I'm sure I got more and more better at the pitch. Um, but what is, what is uh, true is, you know, people who really back you early on are, are awesome angels, really angels. And, and I can see why their word where the word came from
0: that's interesting and now what about once you've made the first close how do you go about things from there where do you start how do you build a thesis what about things like hiring compliance reporting to your lps how did that whole process for you play out because as you previously mentioned you had some stints on the on the corporate venture side You've been part of a few venture funds, but I'm guessing being a GP is completely different ballgame altogether, and it comes with various challenges. How do you deal with all that as a one-person GP?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think at any point, you're juggling between many, many parts of uh, running a fund. It, it goes everywhere from sourcing, picking, managing a portfolio company, working with LPs working on your back office, working on your brand and marketing and any of these things and, and much more. So I think you just kind of become a, uh, you know, good at, well, one, switching and multitasking, but also two, having a lot of these, you're not doing it all on your own. You end up working in a lot of other firms, you end up hiring people. So it's a mixture of a lot of these things. But the sourcing and the picking part is what I prioritize. And that's what I focus on.
0: That's great. Now you've been, as you mentioned, in the industry for about 10 years now. How have you seen the industry evolve in your years in the space, especially with respect to AI, machine learning, data, and some of the areas, areas of investment that Aria looks at?
1: Yeah, it's gone from skepticism to, to hype to to now like just acceptance um, in terms of machine learning uh, and things, trends like that. Before it was, you know, like, well, it's great, but it's hard to work on and it's, you need enough data. Then suddenly the tipping point happened where the data was not a problem and, and it was more like, you know, we have the data, we can do things, and now it's everyone knows an AI company, um, even if they were not real AI. And then now it's at a point where people don't really talk about AI in terms of skepticism. It's more of a accepted way to be more efficient, productive, increase your top line as a company. And so now it's more about just making sure that the companies that are AI machine learning data focused are actually doing what they say they do and and are actually, um, you know, saving capital and, and uh, you know, more efficient and productive as, as, as the whole original goal was. So that's, I would say that's what I've seen happen. And, and maybe that's some sort of a, Maybe we can point it into some sort of a Gardner hype cycle curve. Um, So it's more on like the, you know, the growth side now. It's accepted and now it's just growing.
0: No, I completely agree. There's an interesting stat that Netflix has about 80% of its, or or the users on Netflix view 80% of the content that stems from the recommendation engine more than the search itself. And that shows you how AI is at the core of a company's business. Now, if you think about it on a deeper level, AI is going to disrupt many, many industries and have a ripple effect across other sectors as well. One such example is that of autonomous vehicles, right? As we get to a more steady state in that sector and have cars that can drive themselves, it poses a question of, will there be fewer accidents? In that case, what do the insurance companies do at that point? What happens to the parking lots, which very surprisingly, makes up about 30% of U.S. real estate. I, in fact, had the chance to sit in one of these vehicles during CES earlier this year, and it really shows you the power of automation and uh, artificial intelligence in what it's really bringing to the world uh, today and also in the future. So it make, you you make a very, very relevant point. And you also mentioned that everybody today is an AI company. There's There's also a great blog by A16Z, which talks about how data and AI are no longer moats, but have kind of become a must-have technology infrastructures, especially if you're working or targeting in these up-and-coming sectors. How do you as a VC evaluate companies when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we are trying to use artificial intelligence or machine learning to, to do this and to do that? where does the analysis start and how do you try and see if there are moats within the company? Do you look at teams as a moat or is it something else that really stands out to you?
1: Good question. One thing I check first of all, is like, what have they done that in the past? You know, uh, what their backgrounds are. So obviously beyond that, then I look into um, what access to data that they have. Um, you know, what access to uh, talent they have. What kind of data are they actually going to create from it that's proprietary? Um, and then more importantly, access to customers. Like, are there any customers that are already looking to buy their products? So it's a multifold, like, set of steps. Um, and it's no one thing over the other. But, but um, yeah, that's, that's how I, we generally start, get started.
0: Okay, let me flip that question on its head and ask you, what are the challenges when it comes to evaluating companies that are working in this sector? Like You, I'm pretty sure, get a great number of deal flow. You see a lot of companies on on a day-to-day basis. What are the challenges in evaluating these companies across various sectors? Because AI today, as we speak, could have application and enterprise software, could be on performance analytics, could be on sports data. How are you seeing this evolve? And as we see, what is the toughest part um, when you're looking at these companies?
1: I think there's two things to it. One is being able to actually make the sale to a customer, you can say the AI is going to make you productive, but if you're not a critical part of their business or you're, you know, or the businesses today, not, not spending that much money, you're competing with like maybe a custom solutions in, in, home, in house that are not AI based, but still doing the job. Okay. Um, so, you know, customers wanting it and you're solving a big pain point that, uh, they're willing to pay a lot of money for is, you know, so it kind of takes away the whole like AI for the sake of AI problem, right? You're solving a problem that's real and it's necessary. Um, and the um, the other piece is, I think, uh, I think there is very few areas right now that you can you can that that are big areas, I, I should say, that you can solve some problem in that there's not enough competitors out there, basically. And so I think differentiation is very important and being able to understand the tech stack, why you're better, like, cause everyone now talks about like, you know, we've gone through the hype as well. There's more cynicism now about like, well, everyone talked about being faster with AI, but you know, you didn't deliver. So why are you better? Or people are delivering. and It's just fine. So why do we need another new AI company now? Cause we're in the second, third, fourth wave of, new AI companies in the same category. So why are you better? And uh, what's your differentiation is actually a a thing that's very hard to uh, evaluate as an investor and also communicate as a founder.
0: Very interesting. Now we've been talking about AI and ML for quite a few minutes now, but depending on who you ask, I also wanted to define this for our listeners. In my opinion, it's AI and machine learning and all of these technologies it's basically letting computers and machines spot patterns and information and or, or interpreting metadata like human brain would probably do to make decisions. What's your definition and how do you look at it from an investing lens?
1: Um, good question. I think stuff you mentioned, but also not rule-based, right? Um, something that gets smarter and better with more data um, and more accurate with more data. I think that's how I'd leave it.
0: Great, now we spoke about AI businesses, the challenges in evaluating them. Now what about post-investment? You look at a deal, you find find a company exciting, you, you think the team is great, they've got some product differentiation, they might be on path for product market fit. After that point, how do you scale an AI business? How do you scale businesses across these sectors where there's a lot of competition today if you take a look at let's 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 say for an example, automation. Automation is such a competitive field. Now, if you're an early stage startup, you're probably a year out from um, you, you. You just started out. How do you, as an entrepreneur, or what advice do you give entrepreneurs when it comes to scaling? What do, What are some of the things that they need to be focusing on to get to say, from a seed to Series A level and meet those benchmarks that? a series A investor would then find attractive to continue taking that company from from, from there on.
1: That's an excellent question. Today, as we mentioned, there's second and third wave of AI companies. And for you to actually succeed beyond that, some of the differentiations are having done this in the past and and knowing where exactly you want to improve. So that's the founder pedigree and experience. And second is the network. Being able to say that we have a group of people who are willing to take a chance on our product and, and we can get to them fast and they are able to adopt our technology fast is another differentiation that gets Series A folks also very excited because now you have more traction than another company who is also in AI but is not able to actually sell. So I think the go-to-market is where it, then uh, rubber meets the road. That is where it breaks down to.
0: Now, you know, we talk about scale effects and network effects, and the observation is that data is rarely a strong enough mode when companies are trying to scale. Unlike traditional economies of scale, where the economics is fixed, upfront investment can get you an, or can help you um, scale favorably over time. The exact opposite dynamic often plays out with data scale effects. The cost of adding unique data to your, to your systems may actually go up, and with that, the value, uh, the, the incremental value really goes down. How are you noticing some of your portfolio companies address this, especially in the context of the abundance of data or them trying to say, oh, the more data we get, the better it is for us to really try and come up with more efficient solutions?
1: Excellent question. So you're 100% right. I think beyond a certain point, the marginal utility of uh, you know, being just data-driven first as a company and making that a, a selling point does not win you more customers. Um, and, and for that matter, there's also a lot of privacy and GDPR issues around that too. So if you're trying to do this in health and so forth, you can't actually, you know, um, I mean, there's nuances. You can't actually sometimes keep the data or train on it either. Sometimes you may get by by training on it. But, you know, a company doesn't want to be part of that um, and get into certain other um, legal compliance issues. So, you know, I think that argument is not always the only argument necessary to win as, a, as an early stage company, but it's also access to go to market to customers and your ability to convince a customer to get on your platform um, which is very important, as I said in, in my last comment, right? So, uh, you, you know, the costs, benefits, and everything aside, you know, technical solutions on their own don't sell. You know, the ability to, to combine that with good solution uh, and go-to-market strategy and a good business model makes a company stand out over other competitors in this space.
0: Fair enough. And how early do you mean by early? Like, are you the first check in the companies, or do you expect them to have some sort of traction and revenue before you you will invest in them?
1: Yeah, early means early. We are the first check in the company, and that we call it first, you know, first round of, of the company's uh, formation, uh, and that's when we like to invest. Yeah. So, so it's pretty early, and what we look for at that time is. You know, again, it depends on many, we're not looking for customer attraction and things like that. But we, it, it is nice if an enterprise company founder comes in and says, I've done this before and I want to do it again. And, uh, you know, and by the way, here's my path to getting there. We haven't done it, but it's my path to getting there. That kind of language is better than saying, I'll figure it out as we go.
0: And do you rely heavily on your community network to really drive some of the deal flow because these are very, very early stage founders or do you have... Yeah. Yeah?
1: Yeah, that's definitely... um, That's the key of, you know, a successful venture, a a career uh, investor, you know, having access to unique deals uh, before anyone else does because it's not the only proprietary access. It's access at the right time. And then, and then actually having the know-how and knowledge to actually act on it, which is the picking part, are the two reasons why, uh, you know, a firm succeeds or, or doesn't succeed. Um, and, you know, every, every smart person gets it wrong many times as well. So it's, it's, it's a game where it's, you know, it's a wait-and-watch game, basically, sometimes. Um, but you make the decision based on all the information you think you're comfortable with uh, making the decision at the time. And then, and then, uh, you know, and then it's a diversified portfolio um, strategy, meaning you don't just invest in one or two coming out of the fund, you invest in 20 plus companies. So it gives you enough of a a shot to take uh, where you can then, uh, you know, hopefully have a couple companies really win and everything else, we don't know where it goes from there. Hopefully they all, you know, become something big, but that's usually not how Venture Game works.
0: And do you have specific geographies that you'll invest in or are you global at this point?
1: Uh, we're a, a U.S. fund, so the entities are U.S. only, but we've had companies I've invested in that are based elsewhere, but but have offices in U.S. and India and Israel because we do a lot of deep tech, security, infrastructure cloud kind of investments. A lot of the companies um, coming out of these countries are also uh, good companies for us to invest in. Um, so where you, but, but the markets they focus on are US or global. Uh, we don't invest in other markets only.
0: Got it. Now I came across this really interesting thing um, or a model that you have at Array, which is very similar to maybe that of an accelerator with mentors, where you can probably tap into your network to really help the founders. Now, how does Array, outside of bringing capital, uh, right first check, really add value to startups? And if you could share one or two examples of how your C-level <laughs> executive network can really have an impact on a portfolio company?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, the we actually really help our companies think about uh, you know like a second wave of customer perspective so initially as we were talking usually founders have the experience to go from there into um, you know talking to their networks into how they would be their first design partners or customers but getting into the second wave is difficult because your head's down you're you know not thinking of marketing yet and you may not have the budget yet but you're in, it's a chicken and egg game so what we think about is opening up our network and to help our companies basically think think about that second wave in partnership with with uh, working with us so a g- example of that is our company uniform that we just made a recent investment in is you know in the in the jamstack space and while we were, we were having a conversation with them, we know that a big partner for them, the valuable partner would be them would be a Cloudflare. So just recently we connected them to this, the one of the founders, Michelle Zatlin of, of uh, Cloudflare. And that's an example of having access to certain kinds of founders and community of people is not always possible in your own network, but our exec C level and general uh, reach of the fund and the, because of the focus on enterprise allows the companies to get to them to get to that perspective really fast
0: very interesting so we've got a very similar model here at scrum where we've got this extensive mentor network both on the studio side of the business which actually overflows into our investment side where we're able to add a lot of value and bring together leaders within the community that can really help our portfolio companies as well as some of the other companies that we work with and tap into their expertise. So I've witnessed this firsthand and I can see the kind of impact it really has on portfolio companies. And the fact that that also has a ripple effect wherein on the other side, on the C-level executive side or the leaders and the mentors, whatever name you want to call them, they can use this as an opportunity to really help them at their day jobs. You know, for them, it becomes a discovery opportunity. Either they're trying to tie up with a portfolio company, or the or one thing leads to another. They could end up they they could be looking for a new job, for all you know, and they could take up a role within it, some of these exciting startups that they're looking at. So it it kind of like self serves in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, you're kind of helping both sides of the both uh, both sides of the coin to to somewhat meet in some point.
1: Exactly. Yep. Exactly.
0: Now. I came across this quote, or I was reminded of this quote to an earlier point that you made on the podcast, in in which Adam Smith in the 18th century said that a man is simply obsessed with automating workflows, lowering costs of services for everyone in the economy as a result. Now, 300 years later, machine learning and deep learning is basically advanced automation with the only difference that... Today we are seeing automation of intuition, not just systemic logical processes. Where do you see the opportunities for investment from where you're sitting at this point?
1: That's a good question. By the way, great quote. I wonder what he was thinking about when he thought of that. So, for us, the opportunities, frankly, are in every sector possible. Um, people look at our portfolio and they go, they don't see a sense in how in what we invest in, but the the cool thing is we actually invest across every industry vertical we go we're facile across the stack so we we invest you know on the back ends as we mentioned in in uh, infrastructure cloud security you know all of the above things but also we are you know able to invest more on the application layer as well and so the application layer is what is relevant across different industries so we have investments in health ai you know FinTech AI, you know, compliance, uh, basically across the board. So it's not the matter of where the opportunity is. It's more the matter of what industry is manual today or rule-based today? And is it large enough for us to put in a, a, a AI solution in there that can make that industry Uh, save a lot of money. and, And that's where we are excited to invest in
0: next. That's very, very interesting. And from our perspective as well, you know, some of the sectors that I've been extremely bullish on, as I previously mentioned to you, are things that can really have an impact not just today, but 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. So I'm thinking mobility, robotics, machine learning and AI driven technologies in retail, autonomous vehicles, drone deliveries, FinTech and healthcare, as you mentioned. Now, when we as investors are looking at some of these up and coming sectors or sectors that that some of them would even deem as, as deep tech, as a lot of R&D goes into developing these technologies. What, or where do you draw this line? Because there's a fine line between AI, machine learning, and technologies that can be deployed today versus those that are 5 or 10 years from now which can kind i of get classified under deep tech so that over oh, that, that, that line kind of is sometimes is not visible to a lot of people a lot of investors when they're investing well, what is your stance as an investor when I mean, you take a look at these and how do you evaluate if a company is something that can have an application today versus 90% or 95% of their technology is 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 going to take a few years before it can even be deployed.
1: It's a good point. Some of our companies, for example, we have a company called X-Wing. Um, it's like in the VTOL, uh, vertical uh, takeoff and landing, but, uh, but, but on existing planes and things like that. Um, so it, the, we have a company called Zendar. They do radar tech for the autonomy, autonomous industry. So you're ex- absolutely right. I think it's evaluation of company by company basis and industry by industry basis to see, you know, what what qualifies. Uh, on the software side, by the way, so usually those are hardware examples, but on the software side too, um, you know, sometimes if you're a company that needs to build a lot of connectors across different, um, if you're a platform player, your middleware play, um, then then uh, then that also can take a while. Or if your financial system. And you can't have any errors, and you have to connect with um, you know uh, every uh, financial system that a that a company is using, uh, from a Netsuite to or Oracle or whatever. Um, so we have a company called LeapFin that does that. So, but those things take a while to build, um, and which is which is exactly how we think about, you know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. But that's in some ways a mode as well, and. Oftentimes, no one will take on that kind of a challenge, but founders that really are passionate about doing it are willing to suffer through that for years till the product is even out and to build it out and, and launch it a few years once they take the initial investment. So the way we think about it is we don't want to fund a company to nowhere. So when we fund a company like that, we want to make sure we have enough capital for these kinds of companies that if they need money down the road before they Go on to like a proper series A round, then we are able to support them for that length of the time.
0: Fair enough. That makes sense. That's very similar to some of the companies that we've been looking at and investing at the seed stage as well. Now, yeah. I want to move on to my next segment, and this is actually where the rural fund begins. Uh, it's, a, it's a rapid fire section. I'm going to put you on the spot. You
1: oh, we were not having fun so far? That, oh,
0: I, I see. We definitely <laughs> were. This is, this is a step further, which is why I said the fun escalates here at this point. Uh, Now, I'm going to put you on the spot, ask you some questions and try and get into the investor persona of Shruti. So if you're ready, I'm going to fire some questions. Yeah. Awesome. What's the toughest thing about being in venture capital?
1: Uh, The generic answer is saying no to a lot of really good people. Uh, But more nuanced is taking a lot of time to decide to that and, 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 and making people think that, um, you were not just jumping about their, you know, about their opportunity. Um, and the more realistic, even answer beyond that is inbox management is really hard. As you start getting more and more, um, deep into things, uh, you know, you, you know, there's solutions around it, but it's not the right answer. I think every founder deserves a very personalized and, Uh, you know, and communication that, but it just, it's just hard to spend that time with everyone. So I think those are the three big answers I gave you.
0: Fair. Now, what are your thoughts on the lack of diversity within venture capital and how do we fix that?
1: Well, uh, you put people like me in a position of decision-making and we changed that equation. Um, I, you know, our fund is focused on enterprise, not that we are not diversity focused, but by the nature of having me in a decision-making position, a quarter of our companies are uh, women-led, and uh, half of them are um, immig- over half of them are immigrant founders. Um, we also have just launched another initiative today uh, of of uh, backing uh, and creating office hours for underrepresented Black, hispanic Latinx uh, founders. So we can continue to do our part um, and you know um, everyone else has to also do the same. I think LPs need to do their part too and back more managers like me. So, you know, our patterns are not wired to be the same patterns as other people in the industry. And there is certainly enough success stories out there now to prove that diversity matters and they make the diversity makes the pie bigger um, for any company. So, Um, you know, LPs need to kind of think about backing people like me and putting more people like me in the game as
0: well. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Now, how have you evolved as a person in all these years in venture capital?
1: It's a good question. Um, I think it's a very straightforward journey to be able to say that I've done this in the past and And I don't think it's going to work. So it's what I'm trying to say is it's easy to be cynical about something and to not see the spark in the next founder. Um, And, uh, you know, otherwise DoorDash would have never uh, existed. Like, you know, Instacart would have never existed because companies like uh, Pets.com and and all those things from the 2000 eras did not make it. And those investors probably, if they did not, feel like they could have given it a second shot they you know wouldn't have made money on it on on those companies right now so i think um that is what i think i I have grown to kind of be mindful about um and and not just making quick judgment i think one of one of my mentors actually put it well put it well for me which was just kind of when a company pitches just kind of think about like, what kind of world do you want to be in? And is that the world you want to enable? Um, so that's, that's a very cliche, but, a, a pretty valid North star that guides me.
0: I like that. Now, very similar to that. If you were advising yourself 10 years ago, for embarking on this journey as an investor, what kind of advice would you have given yourself?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, we, uh, you should follow a lot of my blog posts that are, that I write about these things actually, because, um, you know, I, because I am someone who basically had no networks, no access, and then came from that world into, um, right now, you know, running a venture capital firm in the Bay area, which is a pretty, uh, you know, uh, unique job. That most people can't have access to, so um, what would I've said to myself is to have the curiosity uh, to not worry too much about money. Uh, if you are smart, money will come and you will make money, but believe in building experiencing experiences for yourself over um, you know over a transaction so i I've, I've, I've actually at ten years ago or twelve or twenty years ago, I would have said that was my gut was saying that, but now I can say that with data.
0: I love that. And for all our listeners, the link to Shruti's blog is in our episode notes. So please be sure to check that out. Now, if you had the opportunity to invest in any company that emerged in the last ten years, which one would it have been, and why?
1: I don't know. I like my portfolio companies. Everything else um, is great, but. Um, it, it, it's not something I constantly think about. Uh, otherwise, there's no end to, the, end to the regrets, maybe.
0: Fair point. And lastly, what's your advice to founders who are fundraising during this period?
1: Yeah, I think believing in yourself before, before you go fundraise is the most important thing. If you don't believe in yourself, no one else is going to believe in you. And people smell fear. Um, so... If you really believe in your company and you really believe that it deserves a capital um, over any other company out there today, then then communicate that and have that confidence.
0: That's a wonderful note to podcast on, Shruti. Thank you so much for making this happen. And I'm a huge admirer of you and the fund. I wish Great luck and success in the years to come. Thank you so much for gracing us with some wonderful insights into the world of investing in ML, AI, and uh, and data startups.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And that brings us to an end of another wonderful episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And thank you, Shruti, for sharing your wonderful insights on the podcast as well. If you all enjoyed that, and I really hope you did as much as I did, please go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on any of the other podcasting platforms that you listen to us on. And while you're at it, do also drop us a review and rating so that others may discover the podcast as well. We've got another wonderful guest lined up for you next week. And next week also happens to be our 25th episode. It's a landmark episode for us, guys. And I want to thank each and every one of you for helping me get so far. So don't miss out on next week's episode. I'm going to look forward to having you all join me again. Until then, stay safe and take care, everybody. And as you know, keep hustling.